It's Friday, July 23rd. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, turmoil in Belarus, as the government in that country seeks to shut down dissent and our sister organization, Pen Belarus, we talk to the leader of that country's opposition movement here in the U.S. to appeal for support. Then, spyware run amok revelations this week about spyware that's potentially being used to monitor activists, journalists, and writers. We get the details from PEN America's Matt Bailey. Then, tough questions. Are Summer Lopez on Olympic protests and COVID vaccine disinformation? I'm Stephen Fee. All that is coming up on this episode of The PEN Pod. It's been nearly a year since a fraudulent election in the European country of Belarus elevated authoritarian President Alexander Lukashenko to yet another term. It sparked a wave of opposition that's inspired millions, but has also swept up countless dissidents, writers, journalists, activists, and protesters in a brutal crackdown. At the head of the opposition, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, an English teacher turned reformer, she has rallied the cause from self-imposed exile. This week, she came to the U.S. to meet with allies and top officials from the Biden administration. Svetlana Tikhonovskaya joins me now. Welcome to the Pen Pod. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Um, but first, I, I have to start with some dark news today. Our colleagues at Penn Belarus received notice that the government will seek to liquidate the organization. Why is the regime so threatened by free speech and the freedom to write? Because regime is afraid of intelligent, smart, and clever people. Regime is trying now to destroy all the organizations on the ground, all the mass media, for no free Belarusians could, uh, you know, speak. But of course, they already failed because uh, they will not. Regime will not be able to influence people's mind. They can close everything, but they can't close. Uh, perception of peoples of the situation and people will continue to fight uh, further and, uh, you know, will not give up. Why come to the U.S. now? What do you hope to achieve? Uh, I We are looking for allies. And since uh, August, uh, we know that the USA uh, didn't uh, accept uh, Lukashenko legitimate and they uh, the USA had consistent foreign policy towards Belarus. And uh, after Joe Biden came to his presidency, Belarus Democracy Act was adopted rather fast. And uh, uh, after Ryan Air hijacking, sanctions were imposed uh, on Belarus. And now we are looking for uh, more pressure on the regime because uh, uh, regime escalating violence on the ground. Uh, hundreds of people are being, are, detained, are being detained every month and we have to stop this. And it's a pity, but only sanctions can uh, put enough pressure, uh, sectoral sanctions, uh, put, um, can put enough pressure on regime and his cronies to stop violence and, and release political prisoners. So we are asking for uh, more pressure on the un one hand, but on the other hand, to keep uh, resistance uh, sustainable, we need, uh, we need um, support to civil society. So this helped to mass media, to imprison people, to their relatives, to all other organizations that now uh, destro being destroyed in Belarus need assistance. And we were assured that the USA will do everything possible to increase this assistance, 
to coordinate their actions with European Union, Canada and United Kingdom to uh, be more effective. You mentioned just now the hijacking of a commercial airliner, and you're referencing, of course, the incident earlier this spring when uh, the Lukashenko government forced a commercial airliner to land to arrest an exiled blogger. Even outside of Belarus, do you worry for your safety and freedom? Why are you willing to take that risk? Because I can't act differently. Uh, I am uh, the same as other Belarusians are responsible for those who are behind the bars now, who sacrificed with their freedom, with their health, with their lives, you know, to give us opportunity to continue. And now it's our task, it's our home task to, to continue this fight. We can't allow this regime uh, to hold uh, all those thousands of people in prisons just for their wish to change our country for better. Of course, I have to take care about uh, my safeness, but what we uh, are concerning about more is about people who are in Belarus. We have to think about them, first of all. Right. We know, of course, that Russian President Vladimir Putin is propping up Lukashenko. As long as Putin is in power, does Lukashenko have a, a free hand to do whatever he wants? You know, for uh, so many years, uh, of course, these two people uh, get used to each other. They know how to communicate. But uh, now we understand that uh, Lukashenko is uh, becoming toxic to the whole world and he's becoming too expensive to uh, Russia as well. And uh, we don't know if uh, Lukashenko has uh, free hands now, but we uh, want to send a message that if Russia wants to play a constructive role in a uh, solution of our crisis, so just don't interfere into our internal policy. And uh, we have to talk about not about Russia here, but about Belarus. Even if Lukashenko doesn't have free hands, as you, as you uh, mentioned, uh, it shouldn't stop us. This is our country, and we have to defend our rights, our votes, and our people. You know, you've had such an extraordinary year and have been through so much. Uh, the imprisonment of your husband, obviously the, the movement to have to leave the country. What makes you hopeful about the future of, of Belarus? I know that Belarusians woke up. And Belarusians will never uh, return to the state of uh, like slaves uh, as we have been living for 27 years. And I'm not hope, I don't hope, I'm sure that Belarus will be success story where we will uh, win autocracy. We will bring our country to democratic changes. I take this belief from Belarusian people from those who behind the bars, I take this uh, belief from democratic countries that are standing with Belarusians at this difficult moment. And uh, together, together with free world, we will be able to bring our country, our wonderful Belarus to these changes as well. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya is leader of the Belarusian opposition. She's in the US this week. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being with us.
France and other countries announced they'll be conducting inquiries into the use of spyware from the firm NSO Group. It comes days after investigative journalists revealed that the uh, company was in the employ of dozens of countries and may have been tracking thousands of activists, human rights advocates, journalists, writers, even heads of state. Here to walk us through what all this means, Matt Bailey, PEN America's Digital Freedom Program Director. Welcome back to the PEN Pod, Matt. Hey, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to talk about what happens next, but but maybe first let's rewind a bit. Give us give us a quick walkthrough. What is this spyware and how do we know who's been using it and who's being tracked? Sure. So, um, you know, NSO Group is a commercial organization. They have a website. You can look it up if you're feeling brave. Um, they exist to sell spyware surveillance technologies. And they've been doing it for years. Um, this is not like something that's been hiding in the shadows on the dark web. It's not a weird secret hacker organization. Um, it's a company. And so the software in question here, Pegasus, is sort of their premier offering. And we've also known about that for a long time. So what's new uh, this week is that there was a leak of uh, approximately 50,000 records of who has been targeted by NSO Group's Pegasus clients. And so the hundreds or potentially thousands of really alarming targets you were just alluding to um, come from that list. Um, there are a lot of organizations, uh, journalistic organizations and peers of ours in civil society who are working around the clock right now to try to confirm as many of those as possible, reach out to those most affected. Um, and really what's alarming here is that one, um, no action is needed to be infected by this, this software. And two, we're unlikely to ever know the full extent of how it's been used. So you asked me, what is this software? In short, it's a, a tool that is used to gain total access to a target person's um, cell phone and all the records on it. And it's been abused here um, other than it's sort of stated or nominal intended purpose of law enforcement or tracking down the real bad guys around the world uh, to suppress political opposition, activism, and uh, legitimate journalism around the world. So you mentioned a bit about what makes this, you know, sort of unique. I mean, that this, this company wasn't really hiding in the shadows. We've sort of known about this. And, and we know that, you know, countries spy on each other, right, all the time. I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, the U.S. had tapped German Chancellor Angela Merkel's phone. Um, and obviously, there's heads of state on this list. What, what's, what, what do you think, in your opinion, is different this time? Well, I think that what really is alarming about this, and I, I'm sure it stands out to a lot of uh, folks who are listening or have been tracking this uh, and through some of the really quality reporting that's been going on, is it's kind of like really bizarre, the idea that countries are reaching out to this company, essentially dialing a 1-800 number and saying, hey, could you help me spy on these dissidents? Could you help me spy on these activists? Right. Um, so what you have is a, a company that is not uh, the only one of its kind. They are evocative of this surveillance and spyware economy that's been burgeoning, you know, depending on where you want to put the starting gun for 5, 10, 20 years in various different iterations. And what's bad about this is it's harnessing the power of like the marketplace, that there's a lot of demand for surveillance. There's a lot of money that can be thrown at it by all of these companies, by organized crime, by kleptocrats um, to target their enemies. And that means that these companies can grow in a way that um, 
like intelligence services or highly technical teams of the government generally don't or can't. And they can do it largely as it stands without being subject to a lot of the internal controls that we hope that those intelligence services would be subjected to, particularly within um, institutionally strong democracies. So what's different here is not so much that you have governments doing bad stuff with surveillance technology. That's always bad. It's always been around. What's really alarming here is that it's a commercial service and that it's part of a whole market sector, if you will, that's growing rapidly, both in terms of its scale, the number of providers, and the sophistication of the tools that it has on offer. Yeah, I mean, something very scary about being able to mail order, you know, basically this kind of software, and it exists in this weird sort of place where we just don't know how it's going to be used. And as you said before, maybe we'll never know exactly. I mean, you know, we do know, at least from the reporting, a lot of the phones um, or some of the phones were checked to see if they actually had the software. Turns out they did. Um, you used to track dissidents and others. Do we know yet if data culled from all of this was used to arrest or punish anyone directly? Um, you know, to my knowledge, it, it's been a fast news cycle, so I could easily have missed something. I haven't actually seen or anecdotally heard uh, any really clear um, reporting or stories about direct ties between this spying and um, actions taken, you know, to arrest or, or otherwise punish uh, individuals who are being targeted. But honestly, you know, that would be bad. But what I'm really worried about here is the, the larger effects. I mean, let's say there's 50,000 people total in the world. Let's pretend that's the total number who've ever been targeted with Pegasus. How many do you think are sitting around today freaking out about whether they were targeted with Pegasus. That right. number is easily in the millions. And those people are sitting and thinking about, okay, well, the next time that I, as a journalist, do some really sensitive reporting to hold corrupt interests in my country to account, or the next time that I'm communicating with somebody about something terrible and sensitive that's happened in their lives, um, or just with my friends and family, how likely is it that that's going to be subject to surveillance and wholesale um, retrieval by these antagonistic powers. So that chilling effect, that moment of hesitation or the moment that the journalist, the activist, the dissident decides not to do something because they know this technology is out there. That's really what I'm worried about. The scale of that is global. Um, and you know, a lot of the conversations I've been in this week and that we're all having right now are all about how we contend with that marketplace, that market segment I was just talking about of, of NSO and its peers, but also how do we ever get to a place where we feel sure that we have privacy and security of our data on our phones, of our conversations, in order to make sure we can continue to do the work that we need to do to, to support free expression. Right. Well, let me just finally ask, moving forward, you know, what, what, what's going to happen next? And what do we think at PEN America needs to happen next? Yeah, I mean, my hope is, you know, you, you, there are these moments of clarity where there are revelations like these ones we've had um, that bring a conversation to a head and that that galvanize us politically to finally take action. Um, folks who've been tracking these issues in this space, uh, like Penn, but like so many other organizations, have known literally about NSO and Pegasus for a number of years, but also just about these larger dynamics. And there have been calls for you know, new visions for privacy, new uh, protocol, diplomatic protocols or co export controls on these types of technologies 
but there's never been this galvanizing moment where you kind of look the problem really in in the face. And I, I'm hoping that that's the moment that we're having. So, you know, there are growing calls for the UN, for diplomatic corps, for countries, democracies around the world to make substantive changes to really engage on this. Um, we're hearing those rumblings. I think it's too early to call whether we'll actually see that momentum happen, um, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt Bailey, director of our Digital Freedom Program. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. I'm now joined by Summer Lopez, PEN America's Senior Director for Free Expression Programs for our weekly Tough Questions segment. Summer, welcome back. Thank you, Stephen. So I, I want to pick up where Matt left off. You know, when it comes to this spyware scandal, we know uh, at Penn America of, of numerous people um, that are connected to us, at least, who may have been caught up in this dragnet. What, what do we know so far? Yes, that's right. Um, you know, Khadija Esmailova, who's a fierce investigative journalist in Azerbaijan, has been one of the names most prominently mentioned in a lot of the coverage. And in 2015, we honored Khadija with our Freedom to Write Award. She was in prison at the time on politically motivated charges. And although she was released in 2016, she's been under a travel ban ever since. And of course, one of the 2019 recipients of our Freedom to Write Award, Lujain Al-Hafoul, a Saudi writer and women's rights activist, is also on the list. And she actually is in a pretty similar situation as Khadija right now. She was released earlier this year, but she still can't travel and she can't really work or speak freely without the threat of rearrest. And so I really think these two cases in particular demonstrate how you know, these governments are essentially using this spyware as one more tool in their toolkit for how to basically exert total control over the people who have dared to challenge the powers that be. And, you know, they can get away with looking like they let these people out of prison uh, and kind of getting some, some positive reaction from the international community from that, when actually they've just created a different prison for them. Um, and there's also a group of writers and activists in India whose cases we've worked on and spoken out on. They're counted in our Freedom to Write Index. Um, they have been detained under spurious charges related to their activism and criticism of the government. All of them have a long history of activism on behalf of marginalized and minority groups in India. And finally, of course, we've done a lot of work on Jamal Khashoggi's case. And unfortunately, you know, it comes as no surprise that people close to him were on the list as well. Um, I think one thing that's striking about this incident overall especially with regard to people like Lujain and Khadija is, you know, these are the sort of people who assume some degree of surveillance, I think, is part of the work they've chosen to do. They know they know their governments and they've accepted that for themselves. But I think the degree to which this has really touched the people around them, their loved ones. I saw Khadija say in an article that even her taxi driver was on the list. I think it's jarring, even for the most seasoned activists. And it's clearly intended to, you know, to make them and anyone else think twice about you know, speaking out and being engaged and being active in places where doing so already requires just unimaginable amounts of courage. All right. Well, let me shift gears a little bit. I mean, meantime, the Olympic Games in Tokyo are, are underway after a mm -hmm. year's delay. Um, and even before the opening ceremonies, soccer stars took the field to take a knee uh, to protest racial discrimination. And it's really only possible because the International Olympic Committee has relaxed rules on what they call athlete expression. Um, for years, the IOC had said the games were meant to be non-political. What's changed here? 
Yeah. So first of all, I really always take issue with the idea that the Olympics are non-political. And uh, I think I mentioned uh, to you that I actually wrote a paper about this in graduate school around the right. Beijing Olympics in 2008. Um, you know, the Olympics are an event built on the notion of, of national identity and national pride. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's inherently political. And, and in fact, you can go back to the very first ancient Olympic Games were really intended to bring together the disparate city-states of Greece. They, they had a political goal. Um, and they have continued to be a venue for political statements and actions, whether it's countries boycotting in protest against the actions of other countries or individual acts of protest by athletes, the exclusion of South Africa for decades as a statement against apartheid, and even hosting the Olympics itself and the choice of host always has a political edge, right? Um, but it really seems to be only the athletes politics that the IOC has a problem with. Right. And I think that's problematic. So, you know, we have said a number of times in a number of different contexts that athletes don't lose their right to free expression you know, when they put on their uniform, whether they're in college or the NFL or part of an Olympic team. So I think it's been good to see a little bit of a rethink on this, both from the U.S. Olympic Committee, which has gone a bit farther and basically said protests or demonstrations are okay so long as they do not denigrate others and a little bit from the IOC. Um, and I think there's no question that this is coming as a direct result of the protests and activism you know, that we've seen in the last year in the U.S. and around the world, uh, particularly since George Floyd's murder. And I think the IOC, though, is essentially still kind of trying to have it both ways. You know, the, They have um, the Athletes' Rights and Responsibilities Declaration, and that includes freedom of expression as a right. It's codified there. But one of the responsibilities is to refrain from political demonstration and competitions, competition venues, and ceremonies. So those are basically inherently in, in tension with each other. So, you know, I'm glad that they've loosened Rule 50 a little bit, um, but I think they can still do more to ensure that athletes, you know, are able to exercise their freedom of expression as part of this experience and they don't have to essentially sacrifice that to, you know, to have to be a part of the Olympics. Right. Well, uh, finally, I want to turn to Facebook. Uh, late last week, President Joe Biden um, said Facebook was, quote, killing people by allowing disinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine. He walked those comments back um, this week. Obviously, we at PEN America believe that Facebook has an obligation to take steps to rein in disinformation. But is having a president ask Facebook to take that kind of content down a bridge too far? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, is yes, it's concerning. You know, I think there are very legitimate concerns here, um, but I think we have to be pretty clear that the answer is not to have any part of government trying to dictate to private companies what content they should or shouldn't take down. You know, and we obviously that's something we see happen in very problematic ways around the world. We've seen some pretty alarming examples of that in India and Nigeria recently for very different motivation, right? In those cases, it was basically the government didn't like what was being said about them on social media. Um, and so the concern in this case is much more legitimate. There's every reason to be alarmed about the spread of disinformation on social media and its public health implications in the context of this pandemic. But we have to be very thoughtful about what the response to that is. You know, I also don't think it's censorship. I think you know, <laughs> uh, there is a very real problem here. And I, I understand you know, kind of where the emotional response comes from. Uh, but I think, you know, and I think the ultimate blame does have to lie with the producers of disinformation, which is kind of you know, what the president said when he rolled it back a bit. Um, I think, but I think there's an opportunity here for more useful action, right? For there's a lot that the platforms can do to be more transparent, you know, to be clearer about how they're adhering to human rights principles. 
Um, there's a way to think about disinformation coming from a free expression perspective. And that's something we've actually pushed the administration on. We released an open letter uh, a couple of months ago with about a dozen other organizations calling on the administration to establish a task force on disinformation and free expression, because we recognize this is a serious problem, but we really have to approach it in a way that doesn't risk you know, infringing on free expression or, or encouraging the the platforms to be overly aggressive in terms of the content that they're taking down. Um, you know, so we we do think the government has a role to play in engaging with the social media companies in a constructive way. Um, there's also more they can do to, you know, kind of be proactive in terms of investing in education and research and empowering people to be better equipped with the knowledge they need to defend against the spread of disinformation, particularly in this moment where, we're, you know, we are seeing the very real harm that it can do. Yeah, and surely, surely more to come on this yes. front uh, in the months ahead. Summer Lopez, Senior Director of Free Expression Programs at PEN America. Thanks, as always, Summer. Thanks, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, July 23rd. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.